0: Welcome to the Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents, meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today, we bring you another episode from our Ask a Fellow series entitled "The Fatal Mismatch: Massive Pulmonary Embolism." I'm Leah Karyanopoulos,
1: and I'm Zara Morali. We're both internal medicine residents, and it's our pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Kim Lewis. Uh, so, Kim, can you introduce yourself?
2: Hi, uh, I'm Kim and I'm an R5 Critical Care Fellow at McMaster. Thanks for having me here today. Thanks for joining us.
1: So like every Ask a Fellow episode, we're going to start off with a case. Uh, So here it goes. You are stat one-paged overnight to the ward. When you get there, you see a 60-year-old male in respiratory distress. He has a past medical history of hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and an unsecured AVM that he is followed by neurosurgery for. He was admitted with mild hypoxia. A chest x-ray found a pulmonary nodule that is suspicious for malignancy, and a large left-sided pleural effusion. His DVT prophylaxis was held as he is going for an IR-guided pleural drain in the morning. His vitals currently are as follows, temp 37.1 heart rate 120, respiratory rate 40, BP 80 over 40, and oxygen saturations are 92% on a 100% non-rebreather. His airway is clear. He is using his accessory muscles. Auscultation of his chest is surprisingly unremarkable, except for the decreased breath sounds on the left, and no crackles or wheeze. You order a stat chest x-ray. The effusion is significantly better than it was two days ago, there is no evidence of a pneumothorax. When you lift the sheets to examine his legs, you notice that his right calf is significantly larger than his left calf, and both limbs are warm on palpation.
0: So that brings us to our first question, which is when would you suspect a massive PE, and what else should be included on your differential diagnosis in a case like this?
2: It's a really good uh, question. So whenever I have a hypotensive patient, it's important to always start with a very broad differential diagnosis to make sure you're not missing anything that could be a life-threatening ailment and rule out things as you go. So my differential diagnosis would include, for example, obstructive shock, so things like tamponade, PE, or attention pneumo. Uh, We could also see distributive shock causing hypotension, things like sepsis or anaphylaxis adrenal insufficiency, myxodema comas, liver failure, just to name a few examples. This could be caused by hypovolemic shock if someone's having a big hemorrhage or is third spacing, or alternatively, it could be because of uh, cardiogenic shock, so they have an MI or an arrhythmia or an acute valvular problem. Um, I think specifically about massive PE in a hypotensive patient that has a sudden onset of pleuritic chest pain dyspnea like this gentleman does. Other symptoms that would clue me into the diagnosis include hemopsis. Signs I'd look for on exam would be tachycardia, maybe a fever, and a swollen leg. And my attention is really piqued if the patient has a high risk for hypercoagulability, like a malignancy, mobilization, known thrombophilia, or pregnancy. This very unfortunate man seems to have malignancy. And with no alternative ex- explanation on his chest x-ray and very sudden dyspnea, I'm really worried about PE in him.
0: Interesting. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. So I think we, we all like to use massive as sort of a descriptor, like, oh, that's a really big clot, therefore mm-hmm. it's a massive P.E., and I know there's like, <laughs> there's a proper definition <laughs> for it. So what is the formal definition of a massive P.E.?
2: So, classically, back in the day, I guess, uh, a massive PE was defined just by a, whoa, it was really big. And that was on the basis of of an angiographic burden of emboli, something called the Miller Index, which is obviously of little practical use when you're dealing with someone that's potentially going to arrest in a bed in front of you. So, now it's described as a PE that one causes a systolic atrial pressure less than 90 millimeters of mercury or decreased in the systolic blood pressure by at least 40 millimeters of mercury for at least 15 minutes. Two, that, requires, uh, that requ- requires vasopressor ionotropic support. And three, the hypotension is not explained from everything else we just talked about already, so no sepsis or arrhythmias or cardiogenic shock, hypovolemia, et cetera. And in <laughs> fact, massive P's are associated with an in-hospital mortality of up to 71%. That's Wow crazy. That's, that's wild. Yeah. Um, something to take note of is that a submassive P is very, very different. This is when you have a normal blood pressure, but some RV dysfunction, which we're going to get in the mass of P. But here the mot- mortality is significantly reduced. It's an upwards of 11% compared to 71%. So that's quite a big difference. Yeah, for sure.
0: sure. Mm-hmm. So this is the group that on echo, you might see RV dysfunction or dilation, but you won't see the needs for support the way you will. Exactly. In the, in the mm-hmm. You've got it. Yeah.
1: So going back to our case, our patient was hypotensive and hypoxic. Uh, This is clearly a situation where time is of the essence. On the ward, in a situation like this, how would I confidently diagnose a massive PE?
2: Yeah, that's a very good question, and unfortunately, scores like the WELL score, there are decision tools that we use to rule out PEs in the low-prevalence population. We can't use these in the critically ill, so everything you've memorized through all of residency (laughs) and medical school is useless. (laughs) Um things it's that can <laughs> yeah, it happens. <laughs> things that can help lead you to the diagnosis are things like D but they're non-specific, right? Yeah. This guy has stuff going on in his chest, so it would be completely useless and take time. Um ECG findings like a new right bundle branch block, uh, S1Q3T3, or T-Wave inversions of the right precordial leads would suggest that. Mm. Um and really in a patient, if they're stable enough to go down to a CT, get a CTPA. And it's immediately available, we don't have to wait, RADS can make the timing for it, then that will definitively confirm or exclude a massive PE. Um, This guy, I don't know, Uh, he might be stable enough to go down for for a CT. (laughs) But if the patient's too unstable to go for a scan, then Thrombosis Canada actually suggests doing a bedside point of care ultrasound as you suggested. Um, And on multiple occasions, it's actually been my echo that's confirmed the diagnosis for us. There are multiple signs of a PE that we can see in both the heart and the lungs. Mm. Um, It may be a second podcast in the future. I guess
0: you've just gotten invited back. (laughs) You're not getting off the hook that easily. So so you're at the bedside with this patient who's clearly unstable, clearly very sick based on what we've described. You suspect PE is the most likely um, cause here. Can you take us through where you would start with treating it?
2: Absolutely. So you're going to do your spiel like you do with every other sick patient that you've ever encountered. You want to do ABCs, two large-bore IVs. And uh, think about getting to work on a central line if you've got time and expertise, get them oxygen, get them on a monitor, put in a Foley, and get them to an acute care bed. So nothing changes for them. Um, The only thing I do really want to stress here is taking the uh, time to, one, call for um, an attending physician uh, if you're really (laughs) suspecting a massive P, and two, is getting them to an acute care bed. Mm. Uh, these patients go from bad to worse very, very quickly. And I've actually done a few literal scoop and runs um, from front halls uh, to an emergency uh, department when I had a very high suspicion of P and thank goodness I did. I was getting a lot of push to try and intubate, but I knew it was just going to be a bad, uh, bad situation. Mm-hmm. And we literally just ran. Um, we'll do a little bit more on this later, maybe, but uh, back to ABCs. So a airway, his GCS is above eight, um, It said in the stem that he was protecting his airway. So right now, for that reason, he doesn't need an endotracheal intubation. B, uh, breathing. So he's sitting all right at this moment in time. Uh, He's definitely struggling, though. Uh, he might tire out, he might become more hypoxic, and if he does that, we have nowhere to go. Yes. He's completely decompensated.
0: On 100%. Yeah, yeah
2: exactly. Yeah. So I would strongly consider intubating in this patient for multiple reasons. Um, in addition to what we said, plus we have, we're probably going to have further tests and treatments that we mm-hmm. need to help facilitate, mm-hmm. and it'll be much more secure with his airway in place. So regardless, award is not the right place to intubate. Okay. Um, so I would move him down to an ICU and then reconsider the intubation at that time. And I think we have enough time to get him down there in that situation. Okay. Uh, C circulation. Uh, so circulation is very interested in P. Uh, when you think about hypotension, everyone jumps to fluids. Fluids, fluids, fluids. fluids. (laughs) Um, And while there may be an element of hypovolemia causing the hypotension, uh, it may help a little bit. However, too much fluids can actually worsen the cardiac output uh, by increasing the RV and diastolic volume. And that will do two things. We're going to get a little bit physiologic here.
0: So one, (laughs) it's
2: going (laughs) to cause an intraventricular shift. So Mm -hmm. Right switching to left, and that's going to reduce the LV and diastolic volume, therefore reducing your stroke volume and cardiac output, more hypotension despite you giving more more volume. Uh, And the second thing that happens is you fill the RV. It's going to get larger and larger, more Mm -hmm. dilated, Mm -hmm. and you're going to increase your wall tension. What that does, more oxygen uh, demand and more RV ischemia, worsening the whole situation. So. Um, because of that, we you should be cautious with your fluids. Um, you can do a POCUS to look at the RV in this situation mm-hmm. if you're good with that. Um, if you have the luxury of a central line, you can look at the CVP. If it's over 25, that shows some RV, uh, some high right side pressures, mm-hmm. and you'd want to be cautious. Um, But I think for the general gist of people, start with a very small bowl of fluid, Mm. so maybe 500 cc's, maybe a liter. And if you don't see any significant improvement in blood pressure, you're going to have to reconsider your strategy and move to vasopropagin vasopressors very early. Fair.
0: So unlike, say, septic shock or hypovolemic where you're going, no, it's just not enough fluid yet, early on, you're this saying, well, if they're different. not responding, we're switching gears pretty yeah. quickly.
2: Uh, there's some caveats to what you said, but for this podcast, <laughs> for uh, yes, uh, we're not doing the 30 mils per kilo- kilogram yeah. load that mm-hmm. you would do uh, in sepsis. You're, mm-hmm. you're going to try a little bit, see if there's
0: anything you can correct mm-hmm. with your stroke volume and then abandon course. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you do decide that you need to switch to vasoactive agents, where do you, where do you start?
2: So my personal choice is Norepi with either vasopressin or epi added on as, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, epi tends to be my second agent of choice because it's going to give you a bit of inotrophy, which is good for a heart that's not working terribly well mm-hmm. with the beta-1 adrenergic receptors. And it's also going to give you a little bit of pulmonary vasodilatation uh, through its beta-2 action. Uh, Low-dose vasopressin can also cause some pulmonary vasodilations. That tends to be my third add-on agent. Uh, And if you think there's some cardiogenic shock as well, you can consider an inotrope like dobutamine, being very aware that that's also going to reduce your blood pressure sure. so if, if you're getting into that you you, mm-hmm. you should be calling well you should have called for help already but make sure, you're, <laughs> make sure you're you are uh, yeah. definitely have help then yeah.
0: and how much a concern um is the tachycardia that can sometimes come with these things like obviously we know they're tachycardic for a good reason mm-hmm. how worried do you get about that worsening with it you, you just don't just, don't. No. just
2: let it happen <laughs> often what happens these people die it's not from hypoxia yeah. it's always from hemodynamic instability um, and you need to get their blood pressure up because yeah, no. that that's, tends to be yeah. why they code yeah
0: mm-hmm. Um, anything else you can add to any of that sort of to help with the pulmonary arteries or the RV side? Yeah,
2: um, sometimes you can use inhaled nitric oxide as a very potent vasodilator of the pulmonary arteries. And this will help to improve your VQ mismatch um, as well as reducing the RV strain by decreasing the RV afterload. Um, it's not going to be your main go-to, but little adjuncts that you can pull out to definitely help the situation. Sure. Um the other thing that I'll do is empirically, uh, all patients should, should receive empiric anticoagulation with unfractionated heparin infusion, unless they have a contraindication
0: to that. So even before you've gotten them, say, before downstairs even, to CT yeah. or anything, oh, yeah. just yeah. go for it. Yep. Fair enough. And then I think... I guess our next question is like, it's something that always gets included in ACLS and we all get excited about the idea of giving thrombolytics. Um, never actually seen it done. I've seen it discussed on one occasion, but I think everyone was super nervous to, to pull the trigger and go for it. Um, so how do you do that? How do you dose it? What do you, where do you start? Yeah, those are good questions. Uh, so thrombolysis is definitive
2: treatment and what this patient probably needs in this situation. Um, just to give you some perspective on what thrombolytics do for us is compared to heparin alone, they'll improve clinical outcomes and reduce the risk of peas, but there's no absolute mortality benefit. There's a trend Mm -hmm. towards mortality benefit, but not statistically significant. Uh, and with that, there's a lot of complications that can occur. So there's a bleeding rate of 13%. Wow. The risk of an intracranial hemorrhage ranges from 18 to 22%. Mm-hmm. Um so it's not a benign thing to do. Mm -hmm. And if you are thinking seriously about thrombolytics, again, it's very worthwhile to you should, you absolutely should call your attending. And uh I've in fact um sometimes we actually call heme to kind of scurry over to come and help as well. Mm Um so that's the the caveat. If they need it, they need it though. Mm -hmm and how you dose it. So the standard dose is 100 milligrams of TPA infused over two hours. Thrombosis Canada suggests if there's a very high risk of cardiovascular collapse and death, then you're going to do 0.6 milligrams per kilogram bolus TPA to a max of 50 milligrams. And then uh, the rest, what you do, so the remaining, so if you're giving 50 milligrams, the remaining 50 milligrams you infuse over a two-hour period. And mm-hmm. uh, if this patient uh, that we're dealing with on the ward right now has this low blood pressure, he might die, so I would probably just push the 50 milligrams of TPA. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, as soon as you decide to do throm- uh, thrombolysis, you're going to stop your unfractionated heparin, and you're actually going to resume it once okay. once Absolute your uh, administration yes, okay. is done.
0: Yep. Fair How quickly yep. would you expect it to start giving you any benefit? Really? Yeah. Um, well, that's a good
2: question. Uh, so... Um, in my experience i've been involved with more than a handful of these unfortunately and tpa doesn't actually seem to work um and often (laughs) yeah and like we said which makes sense right there's a trend towards mortality benefit so when you're doing it and maybe another good reason to have your staff on call someone else in the background figuring out plan Mm -hmm. b where we're gonna go Mm -hmm. um and it's definitely not the only option uh so If you're going to do it, you should also be on the phone with interventional radiology Mm -hmm. and or CV surgery um, so they can do other things like do a catheter-directed thrombectomy or catheter-directed thrombolysis Mm -hmm. or surgical thrombectomy. And in fact, in this gentleman, I wouldn't have
0: pushed uh, TPA anyway.
2: Cause he has and a contraindication, right?
0: So, probably worth discussing like, what are the absolute and relative contraindications to, to give it? Yeah, so uh,
2: first and foremost, any known structural uh, cerebral vascular lesion is an absolute contraindication. Oh, Un- right. Yeah, an know, unsecured AVM, right. he's a ticking time bomb to explode. Uh, any prior intracranial hemorrhage is a contra, an absolute contraindication ischemic stroke within the last three months, they're at higher risk of ICHs. Any major surgery of the head, face, or trauma within the last three months is another contraindication. Any known malignant intracranial mets, any active bleeding, so if someone's having a GI bleed, you probably shouldn't push it, uh, or bleeding diatheses. And if you're not sure about neurotic dissection, Mm. which remembers on your differential for the hypotension, Mm -hmm. you should uh, make sure that's definitively ruled out before you push it.
0: Um, Anything else to be aware of, but that won't necessarily be sort of a black and white absolute, no? Uh, So there's tons of relative contraindications. Uh,
2: Very long list. We can (laughs) go through if you want. uh, So any very high, poorly controlled hypertension. um, If they have... Uh, Uncontrolled hypertension right now, like a blood systolic blood pressure greater than 180 over 110. Uh, Age over 75 is actually a relative contraindication, (laughs) according to Thrombosis Canada. Uh, History of an ischemic stroke more than three months ago, any recent bleeding within the last four weeks, a peptic ulcer. so if they do arrest and you give them cpr cpr more than 10 minutes would Mm be a relative contraindication um if they've had prior tpa exposure within the last five days that's the most unlucky person i think ever but that would be relative
0: (laughs) pretty
2: awful yeah (laughs) uh pregnancy advanced liver renal disease or uh any current anticoagulation with an iron or greater than 1.7 or less than 50 are all relative um but again remember you're trying to sometimes you take those risks, yeah, uh, enough. and involving families can, can be, can be
0: helpful. Fair enough. And so what I'm hearing is that like with all the juggling and the balancing act that comes with this is really the priority is, as you said already, like ABCs, securing everything, trying to stabilize mm-hmm. them, improving the blood pressure. Yeah. I mean, this comes with it, but you really should be focusing on the first steps absolutely. and basic principles first. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. getting your backup in, uh, mm-hmm. while, while you're doing all absolutely. that to come and help you. Yeah. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Um, And so what if, unfortunately, he does arrest or he does become more hypoxic? We already said he's on 100% O2. We can't possibly put any more in in a non-invasive manner at this point. Do we rush to intubation? What what do you do next?
2: Yeah, so generally people (laughs) tend to die
0: from hemodynamic instability as
2: opposed to hypoxia. But absolutely, you may have to intubate many of these patients, sometimes for hypoxia, sometimes to just secure the airway to facilitate investigations Mm -hmm. or treatments. Um, so in the instance when you decide to intubate a patient, you have to know, uh, that it may precipitate a cardiovascular collapse. So that's why we do the scoop and run and you want to be in the right situation with the right people. Um, I've, so never, ever intubate a suspected massive P in a little ward room, Mm -hmm. in a clinic area or front hall. You want to get to an acute care area, call ahead to have them ready for you when you're there. Mm -hmm. Um, so why can intubation cause cardiovascular collapse in these people? I think it's important mm-hmm. to understand why, um, the sedatives we give can blunt your endogenous catecholamines okay. and that can drop your heart rate and mm-hmm. that can therefore precipitate a decrease in your cardiac output, worsening your hypotension, the spiral mm-hmm. of hypotension ensues. Uh, also the increased intrathoracic pressure because of the PEEP we give mm-hmm. is going to reduce our venous return and therefore also reduce our (laughs) cardiac output. Again, spiral of hypotension is continuing. And then the last is that mechanical ventilation can actually increase your pulmonary vascular resistance, which is what you've been trying to fight to maybe relax a bit this whole time and worsen the RV dysfunction. And again, worse and worse and worse. (laughs) So if you tend to intubate, I tend to keep the patient spontaneously breathing, Mm. um, especially if they're acidotic. Um, so at this time, it's very reasonable to call an advanced intubator, be that an ICU attending, okay. uh, an anesthesiologist, an emergency physician. Um, if there's one thing I want everyone to learn, it's you're not going to intubate a PE patient by yourself in the ward without calling all the important people overnight. This okay. has to be in a suitable environment like the ICU or the eMERGE with adequate support.
0: Okay. okay. It's not us as our 2s No, here. no. You just... Uh, <laughs> I don't think I'd want to take
1: that one on <laughs> on my own, for sure. So I think you've talked about many important points uh, within this episode. Can you kind of summarize everything for us and give us maybe five take-home messages?
2: Mm, okay, let's try. Uh, so one, I think call for help and move to an acute care area. I think yeah. I've stressed that yeah.
0: uh mm-hmm
2: quite heavily. And mm-hmm. that will really be the difference, can make the difference between life and death for your patient.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, maybe the second is a judicious use of fluids. So try 500 cc's. If it doesn't mm-hmm. change the blood pressure, don't don't continue. Mm-hmm. Uh, switch over to point number three, we'll say, oh. which is use vasopressors <laughs> early. Uh, Norepi and epi are two very reasonable and very good pressors to use in this situation. Mm-hmm. Number four, if you're going to use TPA, then the dose for an unstable patient is about uh, 50 IV push and then 50 over two hours. Make sure there are no contraindications before giving it, though, um, and have a backup plan if that doesn't work, like IR or CV surgery. Fair And then five, only intubate the patient, again, in an an acute care area
0: Mm. and ask an advanced intubator to come help you. Fair enough. So this isn't one you manage on some remote corner of a quiet ward. No (laughs) remote corners. Four other patients in the room and it's 3 a.m. with no help. Yeah. (laughs) Fair enough. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kim. We really appreciated you doing this. This with was us. great. Yeah, yeah, I really,
1: I really like talking about worst case scenarios. <laughs>
0: yeah. It's good to think about them. So much, them I'd rather talk about guys. them than deal Calm with them setting. without having thought of them before. <laughs> yeah, we, we really do. appreciate you taking the time to come join us. Thanks again for the invitation. Thank you,
1: <laughs> thank you for listening to today's Ask a Fellow episode, entitled "The Fatal Mismatch: Massive Pulmonary Embolism." This episode was recorded with Dr. Kim Lewis, Critical Care Fellow, and reviewed by Dr. Walid Al-Hazani, Critical Care Physician and Gastroenterologist. The Intro Network series was created by Allison Lai, developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karanopoulos, and overseen by Dr. Daniel Brandt-Vegas. This podcast was produced by Zara Morali. Music production by Laxman Samantha Mohan. If you liked this podcast, please like and subscribe at wherever you get your podcasts. Please also visit our website, www.theinternetwork.com, for a massive PE infographic and additional reading materials. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon.